You're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Supernatural. Here at Goop, we've never been shy about talking dirty, particularly when it comes to the chemicals often used in conventional cleaning products. These are products that we spread all around as we spray, wipe, and scrub, and sometimes we end up inhaling them. Luckily, they're Supernatural. Their cleaning solutions rely on essential oils and powerful plant-based ingredients to get the job done. And when I say powerful, I mean that their starter kit, which includes four of their concentrates, is extremely effective at cleaning up countertop spills, wiping little fingerprints off of bathroom mirrors, and scrubbing the occasional mud footprints from our floors. Get your hands on Supernatural at supernatural.com and receive $10 off your first starter kit using code GOOP10 at checkout. That's Goop10 at checkout. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is a real passion project for us at Goop. Twice a week, we sit down with a guest who has the potential to change the way we look at the world. You'll hear a lot from my chief content officer, Elise Lunin, who's incredibly curious and brilliant. And you'll hear from me, of course. Today, Elise is talking to one of the most talented writers of our time, Danny Shapiro. Danny is the best-selling author of four memoirs, including Devotion and Hourglass. And she's written five novels, including Black and White and Family History. Danny's latest book is called Inheritance, a memoir of genealogy, paternity, and love. It explores her identity and relationship to her memory, family history, biology, and experience, And it essentially asks the question, what defines us? Today, Elise and Danny explore that and much more in one of our wisest conversations on the podcast to date. It's difficult to be born. It's difficult to come into the world. You have kids, you Mm -hmm. know, you were a kid. You know, I have kids. I was a kid. You know, it's, it's amazing that any of us are here, that we get here. And then we go through life and that's complicated too. It's not easy to be human. We'll get to it in just a minute. A lot of people know the European Wax Center for its seamless waxing surfaces. But last April, they also became known for a campaign called Axe the Pink Tax, which they're picking up again this April. The pink tax is the extra amount the average woman is charged daily for pretty basic goods and surfaces. A few years ago, the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs did a study on gender pricing in the city. The report is called From Cradle to Cane, The Cost of Being a Female Consumer, and the results were staggering. They looked at almost 800 products across five industries, 24 stores, and 91 brands. Overall, they found that women's products cost 7% more than similar products for men. Of all the industries they looked at, personal care products seemed to carry the greatest discrepancy. On average, they found that personal care products for women cost 13% more than personal care products for men. That is maddening, as is the notion that any product would cost more simply for being pink or for being perceived or marketed as something for girls or women, and that we would have no idea that this is the case. Other groups have studied the notion of the pink tax, and I think an important first step in overturning it is exploring any and all gender-based pricing differences and talking about it. And I love that the European Wax Center is empowering us to do just that. You can learn more about the campaign at axthepinktax.com. That's axthepinktax.com. Okay, let's cut to Elise and Danny Shapiro. Danny, thank you for being here. 
I loved your book. I read it in pretty much one sitting. I couldn't put it down. It's so beautifully told. And I, I think we can easily talk about it here without giving anything away because it's really in the telling and not in the plot, which is... I'm, no, I'm glad you're saying that. And also, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. I've been saying at events, because somebody during a Q&A will start to say something and somebody else in the audience will say, that's a spoiler. Don't say that. No, no, no. And there's no such thing as a spoiler with this book, I don't think, because it's not actually about what happened. Right. It's about the how of what happened and the why of what happened and the deeper parts of the story. Yeah. I mean, at least that was what was most compelling to me. No, and that and that clearly comes through. Because in some ways, like, the plot in, isn't satisfying, right? Your parents weren't alive for you to even have this conversation with them or to sort of explore what this means. You had to do it all on your own. But so just in case people haven't read the book yet, do you want to give the a, a brief plot summary? Sure. So can ground sure. them in what we're talking <laughs> yes, about. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So a few years ago, my husband decided to do what I would call now sort of recreational DNA testing. As we all do. Right. Just, you know, see whether maybe he was like, you know, one one hundredth Italian or whatever. And, and also finding relatives maybe that he didn't know about as a way of bonding with his parents, which I think a lot of people do these DNA tests in that way, with that, in that spirit. And he asked me if I wanted to do it too. And I could so easily have said no. I mean, I, I knew where I came from. I knew all of my relatives. I was very familiar with my family tree, especially on my father's side. It was a family that was very conscious of its own posterity and its own stories. And, but, but I said yes. And so we did the tests, spit into the plastic vial, sent, a, sent them away. And, if, and I totally forgot, promptly forgot about it. Didn't give it any thought. Yeah. And a few months later when my results came in, they showed me to be not of the ethnicity that I believed. I would have expected that I would have been 100% or close to it, Eastern European Ashkenazi. Mm -hmm. Both of my parents, I come from a Jewish family, and both of my parents were from pretty much the same part of Eastern Europe. But instead, it showed me to be essentially 50% Eastern European Ashkenazi, and the rest was this interesting smattering of Western Europe, you know, English, French, German, Irish, Swedish. And... I didn't actually pay even that very much mind. I figured there must be a reasonable explanation because <laughs> nothing else made any sense to me. I figured maybe all Jews were half, you know, like maybe just, just the way it was. Right. And Or that the company had made a mistake. I held on to that one for like a really long time, very tightly. And then what happened next was a first cousin appeared on my Ancestry.com page, and that first cousin was a total stranger to me. I knew all my first cousins, and this was a male first cousin identified just with initials. But that really got my husband's attention because he has a background as an investigative journalist, and this was not adding up for him. For me, I was still like a kid, like plugging my fingers in, into my ears and going like, la, 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 everything's fine. There's going to be a logical explanation. It's going to allow me to go back to living the life and having the identity that I always thought I had. So we got in touch with my half-sister. I had a much older half-sister who was my father's daughter from his first marriage. And she had done her DNA testing a number of years earlier, and she sent me her results. And the moment when we were able to compare, it's a very easy comparison. There's a site that's dedicated to this called GEDmatch, where you can compare two kit numbers and see how closely you're, you're related. 
And that was the moment that cut through all of my, mm. call it denial or, you know, my, my, my innocence, I suppose. But it showed that we were not related, that she and I were not half-sisters. We did not share a parent. We did not share any DNA, pretty much. And even though I made my husband go downstairs and call Ancestry.com and get somebody on the phone, <laughs> and, you know, double, triple, quadruple check that I'm really... I'm sure they get that call a lot. They're getting that call a great deal. Yeah. yeah. So that was the beginning of my knowledge that my father had not been my biological father, something that had never once consciously occurred to me in my life. Yeah. Although you talk about sort of searching your face for clues of origin and the fact that you're this blonde sort of fairy in the midst of, I'm also half Jewish and I look probably far more Jewish than you do, right? I'm not the half that counts though, Danny. My father's Jewish and my mom is not. So it doesn't count for the rabbis. Or, yeah, no, yeah. I'm not part of the faith. But but do you feel on some unconscious level that you always knew you were different? Absolutely. I, and that's been some of the biggest emotional kind of journey for me is making sense of what I felt like as a child. Mm -hmm. So I was an only child. My parents were older. Their marriage wasn't particularly happy. And it was a very quiet house. It was a house that felt like things could break very easily. Everything was very formal in a certain mm -hmm. way between my parents and between my parents and me. I felt different. I felt other. I didn't feel like I belonged. I was suffused with a sense of longing mm -hmm. always, but for what, I didn't know. In the book, I describe this moment where I'm like kind of walking around or biking around my neighborhood, which is something I did all the time in suburban New Jersey, wanting to be invited into other people's homes, you know, wanting to be taken in, you know, like, like a, like a stray, mm -hmm. you know, into another family. And there was always this feeling and it, and it haunted me into adulthood. And I didn't know why I felt that longing because there was no reason for it that I could supply intellectually or articulate, but mm -hmm. I felt it. And because I felt it and I didn't know its origins, I felt like it was somehow my fault or something wrong with me that I felt that way. And that was very formative for me growing mm -hmm. up. But I couldn't have imagined if you had said to me, you know, if you had had me take a polygraph, you know, is your father your father? I it was, of course, my father's my father. Maybe my mother's not my mother. Exactly. <laughs> no, I thought it, one thing I thought that was so pervasive throughout the book is that the book is such a profound love letter to your father and like incredibly moving. And then you talk, you sort of put it, put it through the, uh, through your half sister, but the pathologizing of your mom, right? That she's maybe borderline personality or narcissistic, but it felt how much of the, the pain was because you identified so deep, like he was your love. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that for me to have made this discovery, and one of the early reviews, the critic said, Danny Shapiro is both the best person and the worst person in the whole world for this to have happened to. And I loved that so much. It was so exactly accurate because I had spent my life in a way, my dad died when I was 23 in a car accident. And I always felt very connected to him, uh, very bonded to him. And when he died, I was a mess when he died. I mm -hmm. was... I dropped out of college. I was having an affair with an older married man. I was like, I was just in a chaotic kind of place in my life. And he died with me in that kind of shape. That was the last way he knew me. And it was tremendously formative for me to uh, spend my life somehow 
posthumously making him proud or making him happy, or I had this magical thinking that he could see what was happening to me as I went back to college, as I stayed and I went to graduate school, as I wrote my first novel, as I became a writer, eventually as I met my husband and got married and had my son. There was this way in which I felt like he knew or he could see. And my body of work, especially in my memoirs, were were like like a cottage for him. They were like a I was always trying to kind of reach him in some way through my writing. Mm-hmm. And so then to be fifty four and making this discovery, not only that he hadn't been my biological father, but really the deeper question of what did he know? right and Did he know that he wasn't? And if he knew that he wasn't, what did that mean for him? I was always trying to piece together. He was a very sad guy. And I was always trying to understand his sorrow. And in my work, I'd come up with a lot of narratives that made sense of his sorrow, which, by the way, I think were all true. They just weren't the whole truth. Right. And the feeling of, wow, I was part of his sorrow, I think. So, and the paradox is that when I was, or an irony really, is that when I was a child, I would have totally have the fantasy that my mother wasn't my biological mother. So here is the biological parent with whom I really felt no connection. And the, as it turns out, not biological parent who I was, I think, on a soul level um, Mm. and still feel on a soul level completely connected to. Yeah, I love those moments where you talk about how you can feel your father's energy sort of enervate your body or you feel his presence. And I know at some point you talk about how you spoke to a medium. Was it Laura Lynn Jackson? Yes, it was. (laughs) Well done. Good guess, right? (laughs) Yeah, she's incredible. She's amazing. Amazing. I didn't understand the reading at the time. Yeah. No, because it was before you, before this revelation. It was years before the revelation. And in, I found my notes years later, after, after I had made this discovery. And in my notes... I had written down, your father says he's sorry, much was left unsaid, and someday you will understand why he needed to walk this path alone. I mean, there were things that, I wrote it down, I didn't understand what it meant, you know, I I, I also felt that there were things that were unsaid, but, so that made sense to me, yeah. but not like, what was unsaid. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Do you think, so just so, just so people who are listening understand the full context, you were born through sort of very advanced and early and not legal? Oh, and, artificial insemination. Artificial insemination, right. He was not practicing with a license. Yeah. So it was the Wild West. <laughs> and what I found out, and it was something, it was a clue that helped me to later unravel all this. But what I, what I remembered was a conversation that I had had with my mom when I was in my mid-20s. And it was two years after my father had died. I was at Sarah Lawrence in graduate school. I was working on my first novel. And there was an evening event, and I didn't want my mother to be alone on the night that was the anniversary of my dad's death. So I brought her with me to Sarah Lawrence, which is about a half an hour's ride north of New York City. And we're there milling about before the reading And I introduced my mother to a friend of mine, a classmate of mine. And my mother said, oh, nice to meet you, Rachel. Where are you from? And Rachel said, I'm from Philadelphia. And my mother said, oh, my daughter was conceived in Philadelphia. And I just stood there like, what do you mean, mom? Like, it was such a weird, it was classically my mother to say something like that in that way. And she said, oh, it's not a pretty story. You don't, you don't want to know. And so driving back 
to the city that night after the readings, I pushed her. And, you know, people have said to me, do you think she was trying to give you a clue? Mm. Absolutely not. There no. is no, no, no part of me that thinks my mother was trying to give me a clue. I think my mother was triggered by the word Philadelphia and somehow out just burst this little, oh, my daughter was conceived there. And as soon as she said it, she probably in some kind of almost visceral animal way would have desperately wanted to take it back if she could, but she couldn't. It was out there. So what she told me when I pushed her in the car was that my, my, that my parents had had trouble conceiving. This was, they married in the late 1950s. This was, I was born in 1962. So this was between probably 1959, 60, 61. They went to this institute in Philadelphia, and that was the word she used, where there was a world-famous doctor, also her phrase, who had developed a way to pioneer, he had pioneered a process by which a woman could identify exactly when she was ovulating, which was cutting edge. I mean, this became standard later, but he had developed it, which I think is how she and my father ended up there. But she made it very clear to me that I was conceived by artificial insemination using my father's sperm. She made it crystal clear that that was the case. Right. And now, and then you come to find out that there was sperm mixing and, and the big question, I guess, that you have is whether your father knew or your mother knew and had kept the secret from you or whether you were all sort of entrapped in the same bubble. Right. I mean, that to me was the driving question of the last number of years. And the driving question as I was working on the book was, what did my father know? What did my mother know? How aware were they? And I began with a feeling of they must have not known anything because it was the safest place to go. It would have meant that they hadn't kept a a secret from me, that I wasn't sort of alone in the dark and the two of them knew the truth of my conception and of my identity, of a big piece of my identity. Nobody that I spoke to believed that to be the case, not experts, not people who were around at the time. Mm-hmm. So the next place that I went to was my mother knew and she fooled my father, which she would have been entirely capable of doing. But I actually don't think that that's what happened either. I ultimately, I'll never know. I'll never absolutely know, which is, as you said at the beginning, the feeling of being sort of left holding a mystery, mm-hmm. you know, like not, you know, both of my parents being gone. It's an amazing exercise in being willing to embrace and live with a certain amount of uncertainty, just simply not knowing. In fact, there was a moment where I took down, I have many, many family portraits on the walls of my house, and one of them was in my office, and it was my my paternal grandmother. Uh, and I took her picture down off the wall because it was just, talk about triggering. I just, I would look at it and I would think, my grandmother, no, not my, you know, it just, it was difficult at the time. And I replaced it with a piece of artwork by my friend Debbie Millman, who's a great graphic artist. And it's a large sort of um, uh, like poster sized piece of like legal paper. And in it, there's a script in Debbie's hand, which says this, just this, I am comfortable not knowing. Mm. And that for me became a big part of this, but within the willingness to not know and to kind of embrace that I feel that I've been able to inch closer to this is the most likely scenario. And I think the most likely scenario was that my parents went to this sort of outlaw institute. It was the Wild West. There was no legal uh, donor insemination anywhere in this country. There were court cases happening constantly at that time where judges would rule that it was adultery on the part of the woman. 
to be inseminated, mm. uh, and that the father, the intended father, had no p- paternal obligation to the child. The child would be considered, in the parlance of the day, a bastard. Mm. There was a, a cover story, I believe, in either Time or Newsweek, where the cover line was, artificial bastards, question mark. Mm. When I dove into this research, every time I did, I could could tolerate it for about 20 minutes at a time before I would have to stop and take a break because it was so painful. I can only imagine. Beyond the secrecy, I think I was listening to your podcast, Family Secrets, and you say, I think in the introduction, secrets are deadly. And it's such an interesting, like I think secrets in general are so fascinating because what's, when is a secret yours and when does it impact other people? You know, like your mom and your dad might've felt like, what would be the benefit of you knowing? It's like what the rabbi said to you, like, what would make, what, what would make you happy or bring what, you peace? what story would ease your heart? Yeah. Yeah. And my response was the true one, right? Uh, which is very much how I felt. But that's, I mean, that's such a great question. I've been thinking, I mean, I've been, I've been kind of a student of family secrets all my life all my my fiction, mm-hmm. I've written five novels, and all of my novels thematically center around family secrets, which is so strange and 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 yet completely it makes so much sense. I just bow down at the feet of the power of the unconscious yeah. because it was so it was so clear to me that I was grappling with this and struggling with this. But at the time, my parents would have been told the child must never know. Go home and forget this ever happened. It's for the benefit of your family and of the child to never know. And one of the things that I had to learn to kind of really think about was that in at that time, that is really what parents believed, that what we don't know doesn't hurt us. And I think we know differently, and we have a very different and much more sophisticated psychological understanding of that today, Yeah. even though there are a lot of people today who still don't disclose their children's identity to them, which... Well, everyone's like, getting busted. I mean, and the yes. transparency of what's today is like, it's actually in, insane if you think about it, that you can get the blueprint to your entire DNA and understand. I mean, I know I have within my extended family, there have been major revelations, which have actually brought a lot of joy. But I know other people who have discovered that their father is not their father. And and like you, it's... It's interesting for this one friend that actually brought him a lot of peace because that was the parent that he just could never identify with and he didn't want to own. So, but yeah, I feel like it's the Wild West. And I know I want to talk a little bit about your biological father who you found and in, in forming a relationship with him and your real half siblings, did you feel like there was a like a soul recognition or is that something that you only have with your father? I love that you put it that way. I would not say that I felt a soul recognition. I have chills even saying that like my dad is going like, yeah, right. It's me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the one you have a soul recognition with. Seriously. I have chills running down up, up and down my body as I'm saying that. What I did feel was recognition I felt uh, a familiarity with with my biological father that was undeniable. And it wasn't just a physical thing. I mean, I do look really very, very much like him, but it wasn't that. It was 
his gestures, it was his mannerisms, it was his hands, it was his literary sensibilities. I, I mean, our relationship as it formed, as when we really did begin to communicate with each other, we started exchanging, you know, literary references with each other. I would send him a poem, he would write back and say, thanks, and have you ever read this? And then in, in, incredibly, it turned out that we we both had the same favorite novel, Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety, which is One not... One of my favorites, too. Okay, are we related? <laughs> <laughs> INFJ. I was like, oh my God, I know you. <laughs> totally. <laughs> oh, Wallace Stegner is the best. Yeah, no, it's... It is going back to that soul. You know, it's a, the, the bigger question, like what makes someone a parent, right? Well, this is what I really came to because... There was a moment early in my discovery, I mean, within 24 hours of it, where one of my mother's very well-meaning friends who I managed to reach, who was, you know, everyone I was speaking to was 90-something years old. So I was in a rush. You know, I was, it felt very urgent to talk to these people. And my mother's friend said to me, after she got over her shock at what I was telling her, she said, well, no matter what, Danny, your father's still your father. And in that moment, that just made me mad because I was reeling from this discovery and from the feeling that a secret had been kept from me. Right. It felt like, it, at the time, it felt like a betrayal. And I thought, well, walk for five minutes in my shoes and tell me whether you would feel that way right now, because right now, I don't know who my biological father is, and he's walking around the world. And it would be one thing if I had always known. So I just want to, I feel like I always need to say that, because parents of adoptive kids or donor donor-conceived kids who have always told them from the very beginning can misunderstand what I'm saying as what matters is that I didn't know my biological father. And that is not remotely what I'm saying. It's that I didn't know that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. I had certainty about who my biological father was and I was wrong all my life. So that's a very, very different, you know, it's being formed by what you don't know and you don't know that you don't know it. If mm -hmm. that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so, so when she said to me, you know, no matter what your father is still your father, that anger or sort of feeling, I knew it was well-meaning, but I wondered whether I was ever going to feel that way again. And I had to find my way back mm. and I did find my way back. And one of the ways that I found my way back was the first time that I actually sat down with my biological father, because I felt many things. I felt, I felt relieved. He was lovely and thoughtful and I liked him. It's a nice thing to like your biological father. And that doesn't happen for a lot of people. Yeah. It doesn't even happen necessarily with the parents that you grew up with, right? But I, I liked him, and he was very kind and generous. And I felt the language that came to me later was that he felt like the country that I was from. Mm. Like I had never been there. I had never visited. I had never listened to its music or climbed its mountains or eaten its you know cuisine, but I was from that country. It felt like that, but he didn't feel like my father. And I think that that was the first step for me back to my father because sitting with the man who was a perfect stranger to me and yet intensely familiar, but who didn't raise me, led me slowly. It's like my father started to reemerge. Mm. I actually started to be able to feel him around me again. I started to be able to feel his presence in the way that I hadn't from the moment that I made the discovery. And part of that was the, here's the thing with any kind of thinking about connection with those who are gone, right? Is that I really felt that my father was witnessing my life and that I had an ongoing conversation with him that, that felt very real to me. 
And if that was the case, and I've made this discovery of a secret that he had taken to the grave with him and never wanted me to know, and then I'm going and I'm meeting my biological father, well, you can't sort of shift the rules. It's like, well, if he can see my kid and my husband and my literary career, then that means he's also getting to see my lunch with my biological father, the anonymous medical student who, you know, he never even knew anything about. And that would be, gosh, that would be painful, except apparently the dead don't feel pain. And there's like, <laughs> I all, I went, like went through all these different permutations of you can't sort of pick and choose the, you know, sort of what that connection is. And yeah. so ultimately it really did return to me this feeling of he is the father who loved me into being. He is the reason why I'm in one piece. Mm -hmm. He's the reason why I survived my mother. Yeah. And that's my foundation. That's, that's, that's where I come from. And there is nature, you know, there is genetic, you know, there's like predispositions and, and, and dispositions of certain kinds. And I am able to see traits that I have both in my biological father and in, in his, well, I, I particularly know one of his kids, his oldest is a daughter who I've become close with. And she feels very familiar to me too. But it's not about, you know, the idea that we feel familiar to each other because we're related. I think we feel familiar to each other in the way that we do with certain people that we meet in life, you know, mm -hmm. where just someone feels like family right away, or somebody feels like, there is a sense that we know each other or that we're connected to each other. And then, and of course the inverse of that, like, like the word that I always have when I'm walking down the street in New York city and somebody's working, walking toward me where the energy just feels really off is like wide birth. Just yeah. give this person a wide birth. We're taking a quick break. The Goop brand was built on the concept of making better choices, including which creams, oils, and fragrances we use to cleanse our faces and bodies. But what about all the sprays, wipes, and cleaning products we regularly use around the house? A lot of the conventional stuff is loaded with chemicals that are actually not necessary for these products to do their jobs. That's where Supernatural comes in. Their effective, chemical-free cleaning sprays are flipping the industry on its head, one conscious concentrate at a time. Not only is every product made using potent plant and mineral-based ingredients, they actually work without any toxic offenders. What this means is that cleaning day has become a much more pleasant, even refreshing experience. The stuff leaves the whole house smelling subtly of essential oils like fur, basil, and lavender. And as a mom, I don't really have to sweat the small stuff, like my kid eating a handful of cereal right off the floor or getting their sticky fingers on the mirrors. You can try all four of their formulas with a Supernatural Starter Kit. Get your hands on Supernatural at supernatural.com and receive $10 off your first starter kit using code GOOP10 at checkout. That's code GOOP10 at checkout. I love getting to talk with and learn from female executives at other brands. And I recently got to chat with Jamie Gersh, who is Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Old Navy. We hit it off pretty instantly. Jamie has spent 17 years working at Gap and Old Navy, so she's a veteran in the industry. I was particularly excited to talk with Jamie, though, because Old Navy has an incredible track record when it comes to the number of women who make up their workforce and the number of women who serve in leadership positions. Working at Goop, where this is also true, although obviously on a much smaller scale than Old Navy, 
I think about this a lot. How can we better support women and moms throughout their careers? How can we get more women into positions of power? I learned a lot from Jamie in a short amount of time. And over the course of a few episodes, I'm going to share some of my favorite parts of our conversation. Here's today's soundbite with Old Navy CMO, Jamie Gersh. You mentioned that you had mentors. Was there anyone in particular who sort of stood out who helped you imagine the role that you are in today? Yeah. I mean, I've had so many. I'm proud to say that throughout the course of my career, I can think about so many women that acted as role models for me. And they all behaved differently, but taught me a lot about how I wanted to lead and the belief that you really can have a great family and an amazing career, especially, you know, at the company. But one person that really comes to mind who really inspired me was a woman by the name of Kyle Andrew, and she is now the CMO of American Eagle and Airy. And she used to bring her son, I remember, Bazzi, used to come to our office all the time. He was, you know, four or five at the time. And we had coloring in our office, and he would sit there and color with us. Or she would leave because she needed to go to, you know, do something for her kids. But it was this idea that kids are welcome in the environment or that if you need to leave to do something for your child, it's totally acceptable. And I think that's the way that it's become so embedded in our culture is that, sure, do we have policies that help women succeed? Yes. And, you know, we can talk about those. But I think most importantly is just this idea that in the culture, it is very, very acceptable and and admired to be seen as a working mom and being able to balance those two things. And I've taken what I've learned from these mentors and really made myself committed to this idea of paying it forward and how do I act now as the role model for young women throughout the corporation to make sure they can see I have three kids, I take them to games all weekend, I run around, you know, just like they they will and still have this amazing career and follow the business and I'm as passionate about driving this brand and business as anyone else. Okay, let's hear more from Elise and Danny. Speaking of sort of the the energetic world or the way that we experience people in that way, I I like to believe, and I've had this conversation with friends of mine who have adopted both very visibly and then also not as visibly, that I really believe that we choose our parents and that we come, that we choose on a soul level. And I look at my own children who look so different than I do which if I hadn't carried them, I would be, I wouldn't, they're blonde and blue eyed, which is strange for me. And they're so, I mean, they're of me, but they're so different. And I really like, I like the distance of feeling like they chose us. And I don't know, you're, you're, I, I don't know if that resonates with you, but. I'm thinking of a conversation that I had with Gabby Bernstein, where she's a friend and she was a relatively new friend at the time. And I sat and we sat in this, on this porch of this inn and I told her the story. And, and Gabby just said to me, this was a contract. Mm-hmm. You had this contract with your father and your father had this contract with, with Ben, you know, my biological father. And it was all just this, yeah. this, this, big, this big contract that sort of kind of resulted in, in you. And I, f- I felt a measure of rightness and, and, and comfort in that. And the way that that's kind of settled for me is that it really feels to me that I come from three people. I, you know, I, I, I come from my mother, who is my 
biological mother. I mean, I actually ended up doing having one of her elderly cousins do a DNA test just to prove that <laughs> after all this, because it was so the Wild West for me at that point. It was like, is any do I have any tent poles here? Is there any, like, is it possible that maybe... I don't know, like this medical student from Philadelphia is my biological father who's a sperm donor, but my mother's somebody else altogether. It's like, is there a universe in which You're that like, could have happened? Crossed. Right. I was like, right. <laughs> and my dad and the man who was my biological father, all three of them, without any of them, I wouldn't be here. And so that has this particular kind of unusual resonance mm-hmm. for me. A certain amount of magic. And this idea, too, that you were going to come any way possible. Well, I thought a lot about randomness. Because when you find out something like this about yourself, like I was thinking, well, was it just this particular medical student had a free hour? And that's how I ended up coming into being? What if he had had chemistry lab that hour and it had just been somebody else? Then there would have been an altogether different human being created. And that felt, you know, there, there's a moment in the book where I, I, I go and visit my 93-year-old, mm-hmm. now 95-year-old aunt, my father's younger sister, who is one of the most spectacular people that I know. And I can see if I can get through this without crying. She said to me, you know, after I explained to her, I said, you know, I, I broke the news to her that essentially I was telling, telling her that she and I were not related by blood. And she's an Orthodox Jew and my feeling about that was that blood was very important to her. You know, she has like 65 great-grandchildren. It's, you know, it's a real thing. And once she understood what I was saying, she grabbed my hand and she said, I am not giving you up and you better not be giving me up. You are my brother's daughter. And then she proceeded to spend the entire afternoon doing every possible thing that she could do to kind of like put me back together again. Mm -hmm. And what she said that stayed with me the most was she said, Danny, you are not an accident of history. Mm. You know, whatever cold science, as she put it, went into this, look at what you've been given. You have been so recompensed and you're carrying the pain, but you also carry the the reward. And it was this extraordinary and really spiritual experience, like what we went through together. But that phrase, accident of history, really stayed with me. And then I finally kind of came to the idea that we're either, either none of us are accidents of history or we're all accidents of history. But the fact that my particular way of coming into being involved this mad science and this outlaw institute, you know, and and this secrecy and 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 you know, all of that is a little bit more intense to kind of you know, grapple with, but is not really all that different from a couple who's been together for 10 years who's trying to have a baby and at that particular moment, that particular sperm ends up with that particular egg Mm -hmm. and that ends up being that particular human. And one second earlier and it would be something else and another human entirely. So we all are here as a result of all of these patterns and chaos and randomness and beauty and contracts and sort of all of it. Yeah. And it goes to that that very fundamental question of like, who am I? Right? And if you think of it as you're an amalgamation of this physical matter, like this genetic code, but then who are you really? Is that who you are? Or are you the soul? Right? Right, right. And is one born from the other? Right. I mean, I I remember 
going to visit my best friend very shortly after my discovery. And I really was feeling like, am I who I thought I was? Mm -hmm. Which is a crazy thought, but it was, I was so, I there, there was so much I didn't understand and now I do, but does that negate who I've been for my whole life? And fortunately, my friend is a therapist. <laughs> so useful. Yeah, best friends who are therapists, really excellent. You have one who's like, you want to, you want to, you know, like a physician, a therapist, maybe a medium, yeah. a couple of, you know, I don't know, an attorney, fashion designer. <laughs> and I, I had tears streaming down my face, and I said, "Do you still see me as the same person?" And she just looked at me with such compassion, and she said, "You are the same person. Like this has not changed." who you are. It's changed your understanding of who you are, but it's a very interesting way to feel because it's as if there is a way now in which it all makes so much sense to me. And it's 54 years that's almost sealed off in a time capsule of that was my understanding of everything that I knew up until that point. And now, two years later, there's this whole other way of remembering and processing and thinking about. And also, I mean, one thing, I've never had a sense of purpose like this with a book of mine coming out ever, ever. I mean, not novelists, we don't have a purpose. We, you know, if we're lucky enough to be published and find readers and maybe continue to be read after we die, like that would be an awesome trajectory for a novelist. And, you know, and I've written memoirs and I feel the same way about my memoirs, but I found myself in the middle of a really extraordinary moment in time with this story, with this story that is my story. And I found myself saying to my husband, I just want to do the story justice. I mean, the fact that it was my story was incidental to it because, you know, part of what we've been talking about here in terms of secrecy is we're kind of, a, we're in an era where it's, that's ending. It's not going to be possible for parents to keep secrets from children about their identity, for anonymous donors to be anonymous, for birth parents of adoptive kids to not be found. Mm -hmm. Many of them want to be, but some don't. And the people who are sort of alive today are all reckoning with this in a way that I don't think is going to be true in another 20 years, because it's going to have run its course. The idea that this was ever okay to keep secrets like this is going to seem as ill-advised as cigarette smoking or, you know, the Dalcon shield or, you know, plastic or, you know, not recycling or, you know, whatever. It's going to be something that people will not understand how that ever could have been a thing. All right. I think it's also interesting because you think about it from the context of a donor and keeping people incentivized to help families and, but I think there's a bigger conversation too about like what it is that makes you, you, right? And the, you know, that incredible documentary about the three brothers. Three identical strangers. Three identical strangers and just how the importance of the nurture and the, I mean, that's a, such a heartbreaking movie. Well, you're, 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 you're talking about nature and nurture. And I think that we would, I think generally as human beings, like to completely eliminate the entire, any importance of nature, mm -hmm. just obliterate that, have it be gone because it's the part that we have no control over. Yeah. And nurture is the part that we do have control over. And we human beings love nothing more than to feel that we're in control of, especially something as important as raising our kids and, you know, the family that we have. 
this discovery of mine sort of kind of gave me a front row seat to those questions. And while I think that nurture is tremendously, hugely important, um, I don't think nature can be dismissed. And that's, you know, that's, that, that, you know, we wade into some sort of tricky, thorny territory there because parents who have kids with donors or adopt kids very much desperately want to dismiss it, to have it just be completely gone because they love their kids and they just want to get on with their lives as families. But they're in fact doing their kids a disservice by not understanding that there's some way in which it's, you know, it matters. It doesn't, it's not everything. It's not even a lot necessarily, but the idea of the sense of, you know, in, in adoption literature, there's this beautiful phrase that I stumbled across, which is genealogical bewilderment. Mm. And I, I just felt the power of that idea of just, you know, and some people spend their whole lives simply not knowing where they come from. And as I said before, that's like, that's, that becomes absorbed into you as, and I'm someone who doesn't know that. And mm-hmm. that's um, pro- not easy, but it's something that one can contend with. But to not know it all and to have that be, well, we love you and it doesn't matter. It, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's not everything, but it's not nothing. And it's also, it's a desire to make it not be complicated. Yeah. You know, and I, I wrote this piece for Time Magazine right before my book came out in which I wrote that it's, it's difficult to be born. It's difficult to come into the world. You have kids, mm-hmm. you know, you were a kid. You know, I have kids. I was a kid. You know, it's, it's amazing that any of us are here, that we get here. And then we go through life and that's complicated too. It's not easy to be human. Mm-hmm. To have a child you know, in these various different ways that people make families makes is slightly more complicated. And to pretend that it's not complicated at all, mm-hmm. I think is the, I mean, I, I have, I am now hearing stories constantly because my book just came out and I'm, people are telling me their stories of secrets being kept from them. And what we share to a person is that childhood feeling of there's something not something I don't understand. Yeah. There's some way in which I don't entirely add up. Yeah. Which I think is interesting that you felt that on some unconscious level, just because in that the three identical strangers documentary, the the their inability to sleep when they were and that's such a physical thing. The fact that they were separated is so heartbreaking. But that they knew that something was wrong, I think is such a profound idea. So I agree. It's like, and do you think you can bridge that gap with knowledge? Like if they had known that that might have soothed them? Well, in their case, and that film, you know, was devastating. I had a moment watching that film where I I had been working so hard to understand the world in which my conception happened. Because I think everyone in it was trying to do the right thing. They believed that the right thing was, that the child doesn't need to know, that no one, the parents should go home and never speak of it to anyone ever again. You know, the mixing of the sperm would allow the father to, you know, have the plausible deniability or the sense that, well, maybe the child is mine. I mean, my sperm was in there too. And right. and that was done with everyone's best interests at heart, even though from where we stand now, it's clearly psychologically not the, the best solution, that kind of secrecy. 
in Three Identical Strangers, those triplets were a science experiment. Right. They, human beings were used in the name of science, and there's, you know, there are words for that. Right. Um, and that was, so in their case, they were separated in a very deliberate way, and the discovery of that, the, you know, the horror of that, of, you know, ad- adults, doctors, you know, doing something so terrible in the name of research even though they too probably felt that they were doing something that was important. But I can't help but see that even through the lens of presentism as just pure evil, like just wrong, wrong, wrong. But the question too, and this is where it gets incredibly complicated, is that if my parents had sat me down in the early 1960s or the mid-1960s or when I was 10 years old or whenever and had told me that I had been conceived by using a sperm donor, and they felt it was important for me to know that, and my father loves me very much, and it makes no difference, and I'm their daughter. I actually think that would have been terrible mm-hmm. at that time for me, because it was secret everywhere. So I wouldn't have known another soul who was donor conceived, or at least I wouldn't have known that I that I wouldn't have known that about them because it was such great, great secrecy. And the idea that knowing my biological origins would ever be possible would have been the stuff of science fiction. So I I don't think that there was any upside for them in telling me. And yet at the same time, it still feels like a betrayal that they didn't. So it was kind of an impossible, you know, between a rock and a hard place situation for them. That's why your dad felt like he needed to walk that path alone. That's right. That's right. Thanks for listening in on Elisa's chat with Danny Shapiro today. You can find all her books at dannyshapiro.com. And be sure to get her latest memoir, Inheritance. Again, we're so grateful that you tuned in to the Goop podcast today. And we hope you'll be back soon. We have a new episode coming on Thursday. As always, we'd love to know what you think. So please rate and review, share with a friend, and hit subscribe. Head to goop.com slash the podcast for more info.